Hello, I'm your host, Leonard Duncan. Welcome to a new episode of ATV Talk and Motorsports Podcast. Please join us every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We bring you interviews with industry professionals, live events, live news about the motorsports industry in every episode. Enjoy the show. Whether we are out riding with our friends and family or racing in extreme environments, we all need good tires. That's why I recommend GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Greenball Corp. Their products, which include XC Master, Mini Master, and Groundbuster 3, are what leading professionals in the ATV UTV industry are using. You can get your tires at greenballtires.com or find them on Instagram as GBC Tires for further inquiries. Are you looking for the best suspension technology for your sport ATV? Look no further than Elka Suspension, the industry leader in sport ATV suspension technology. With championship wins in prestigious events such as the Dakar Rally, Score, Best in the Desert, ATV MX, Cross Country, and Works, Elka Suspension has established itself as the go-to choice for athletes and enthusiasts alike. But they don't just stop at ATVs. They're constantly expanding into new markets, including UTVs, trucks, SUVs, pit bikes, snowmobiles, and more. Their commitment to innovation and quality means they're always looking to improve and adapt so you can enjoy a smooth ride wherever you go. Want to learn more about what Elka Suspension can do for you? Visit their website at elkasuspension.com or give them a call at 450-655-4855. They will always be happy to answer your questions and help you find the perfect suspension solution for your needs. Welcome to DBR Racing Products the leader in 3D modeling and innovations. Since 2015, they have been revolutionizing the industry, starting with their groundbreaking YFZ450R battery boxes. But they didn't stop there. They have continued to push the boundaries, constantly improving their design with each new version. In 2018, they introduced the game-changing Vortex EXO cage specifically designed to securely hold the Vortex ECU in a safe and sturdy location. This breakthrough innovation ensures your ECU stays protected even in the toughest racing conditions. At DBR, they understand that every detail matters. That's why they also offer an array of essential products to enhance your racing experience. Their spark plug hold downs keep your engine firing at peak performance while their LTR breather boxes ensure optimal ventilation for your machine. Their LT250 engine skid plates are a must have for those seeking unmatched protection. Engineered to shield your engine from impacts and rough terrain, they provide the ultimate defense for your ATV. But that's not all, they've developed ProPeg mounts that allow you to use TRX450R Nerf bars, giving you greater control and maneuverability on the track. To explore their full range of innovative products and learn more about DBR Racing, 
visit their website at www.dvratv.com. You can also reach them directly at 507-828-1233. Their knowledgeable team is ready to assist you with any questions or inquiries. DVR Racing Products, where innovation meets performance, unleash the power within you. Harry Clem, how are you, sir? Welcome to ATV Talk. Well, I'm doing terrific. How are you? Hey, I am doing amazing. You know what? This has been coming for a long time. I never got to meet you in what we would call the heyday of the two-stroke era and the ATV stuff that was going on, you know, with with all the three-wheelers and the and the and the beginning of the four-wheelers. But I got to meet you at the reunion. And I really appreciate you taking some time uh, to uh, let me know what your story is. Well, well, thanks so much. And I'll tell you, I'm not surprised at all that uh, uh, you and I did not get to cross paths um, because uh, it's important to understand in in my world, I have always been uh, a race mechanic, a race technician. And if you need to understand the big picture of all of that is um, the job of professional race mechanics like me, and this started from the 70s when I began, is to not be seen, not be noticed, not be spoken to, because our winning races look like it's really easy. And so that means that the racer, Oops, and I, I my connection's unstable. Did you miss that? Uh, okay. You you stuttered for a second, but did, but it okay. all comes through. <laughs> but uh, but you know the uh, back in the day, um, and especially in the seventies, uh, the mentality was um, the racer would show up at the starting line with a perfectly clean motorcycle that started on the first kick. And he whole shotted the race and went and won the race. And the objective of all of that was make make it look like winning races was easy. And that's what all the manufacturers wanted. And so if you chose to become a race mechanic, as I did, they wanted you to be as invisible as possible because they wanted kids who bought their bike to think they could just show up at the races, kick started on the starting line and go win a race. And uh, as anybody in professional racing knows, winning races is many things, but easy is not one of them. But that being said, that was my job uh, pretty much forever. How did you How did you get into motorcycles? Um, <clears throat> a fair question at the, from day zero. Um, you know, my um, father was a lifetime motorcycle enthusiast. He was a, a German immigrant. Uh, I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan in 67. Uh, we moved to San Diego uh, where they were looking for tool and die makers. That's what he was uh, to work at the aircraft factories in San Diego uh, for the, what was the, the hot, very hot Vietnam War at the time. And uh, and so, God, moving from Detroit to San Diego in 1967 was just the coolest thing that could ever possibly have ever happened to me. And um, and because he was a motorcycle enthusiast, it wasn't one of those deals where mom would ever say, 
uh, you cannot ride a motorcycle because I could ride a motorcycle anytime I wanted, whenever I wanted. Um, and uh, so when I was a teenager, uh, my brother and I, we got a job. We both got jobs uh, through a, a friend of my dad's at a motorcycle shop in National City, California called Sunny Angel Motorcycles. And he was an old school motorcycle racer. Um, he, uh, they were a dealer for Nortons, Ducatis, Bridgestones, Matchless, a lot of the old school stuff. Uh, but it was a terrific experience because uh, he and the mechanics who worked there, they were old school race mechanics. And these guys were incredibly smart, incredibly crafty, and they knew how to make the absolute most out of nothing. Because back in the 50s uh, and 60s, you had to be able to do that. And so my brother and I learned from these guys. And uh, what we learned was, <clears throat> you never say you can't do it. And uh, if somebody tells you you can't do it, it's your job to prove them wrong. And uh, and so th that is the place that I came from. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, when I, uh, during the time I, I was working for Sonny Angel, uh, he, he you know, was very free and easy. And he says, hey, I've got this Ducati motorcycle. Uh, uh, if you want, you can go racing it because Sonny had a road racing background. And I said, OK, so I put together this 1959 Ducati 175, what I did not know at the time because I was stupid. It was a 1959 factory road racing bike. And I got it all together and uh, it ran like it, it would go a little over 100, 100 miles an hour, which at that time uh, for a 175, you know, in 1970 was a whole bunch. And my brother all, all also worked there. He road raced his. Uh, his uh, Bridgestone 175s and and his Norton, and so we went to local Southern California club races, and uh, we we did great. You know, with my Ducati, I won a few races uh, and uh, had a great time. It was a terrific experience. And at that time, in the late 60s, early 70s, I mean, there were motorcycle road racing tracks everywhere. Uh, there was Carlsbad, Riverside, OCIR. Uh, later on, Ontario, there was Riverside. So club racing was so, so active. And we raced at all those tracks. Um, and uh, looking back on it, the, 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 the bike was not nearly as well prepared as it could have been or should have been. I should have killed myself 100 times. But uh, as as it unfolded, you know, I took first place like three or four times in a couple seconds. And so that, that was a total win. Uh, as time unfolded, about 40 years later, some guy bought the bike, uh, the actual race bike from Sunny Angel and did a perfect museum quality restoration of it because the things there was there was only like a hundred of them. And uh, I have pictures of it. He did the restoration. And they're worth like 40 grand now. So there's no hope of me ever going back to buy one to put in my living room. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, so we, uh, the thing I think we learned the most was uh, if you're going to be in motorcycle racing, you need to make the most of what you've got at hand here and now. 
And uh, uh, there's no school for that. There's no college for that. And uh, and it, it's just a way of thinking. And actually, as we gravitated into Southern California club road racing, everybody else was pretty much in that same lane. It was like, um, there's no factory teams. There's no uh, box fans. Everybody shows up in a pickup truck. And if you need a bolt or a washer or something, you better make a lot of friends at the racetrack because you, whatever you can borrow is what it's going to take to get your bike back together to run the next race. And that that is the universe that we came from. And uh, and I, uh, while it it was divine madness. I realize now in hindsight, uh, there could not have been a better preparation because at the time there was no such thing as a, a, a school curriculum for people who wanted to go into motorcycle racing. Everybody who was in it was high school graduates that were just dancing as fast as they can. And, uh, and I was no exception. So, uh, and, and the thing is that there was no, there was no school for tuners. And, and, you know, I raced for a while, but then I realized um, even like every teenager, you know, I had visions of being a world championship racer. But after a while, I realized that wasn't going to happen because I was slow. And <laughs> hard reality, <laughs> I was slow. <laughs> I, I won a few races because I was on a super fast motorcycle. But when it really came down to it, I wasn't a very good rider. So I eventually uh, morphed away from uh, from ride racing. My older brother, he was a far better rider than me. And so I got into working on his race bikes. And that went into the early 70s. Um, and that's when two strokes really started to take hold. And uh, uh, And nobody knew anything about two strokes. It was just a it was just a completely open world. So uh, uh, the only thing you had to be was bold enough to experiment and fix the things that broke when you made a mistake. And we did that. And pretty much everybody back then did that also. My my dad and, tells me the story that <clears throat> when uh, uh, the Czechoslovakian machine came over, it didn't have an air filter. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, this, uh, the number of stupid things that happened were beyond description. Um, uh, it was, it was an, an entirely different world. And when you try to explain it to racers uh, of today, they, they look at you like you're crazy because how could that even happen? Well, it, it did happen. And you're 100% right. Um, th there were things that it was just insanity. But, you know, the thing is, everybody was in the same boat. And so as time evolved, um, I didn't just start, was working on my brother's two-stroke uh, race machines. Uh, we raced Kawasaki Bighorns, which were a 350cc rotary valve engine single. But we had lots of racing friends with Yamaha RD 250s, Suzuki 250s, and lots of other platforms. And nobody knew anything about anything. And I was the only guy who appeared to be interested in working on bikes. And so I learned everything that I could and experimented on these club racing bikes. 
and eventually had some pretty good success. And I wasn't the smartest guy in the world. I was just the smartest guy at the track. And <laughs> so you didn't have to be that smart uh, to, to be the smartest guy at the track at that time. Um, uh, but, you know, as, as time unfolded, um, uh, what be, was at, the, at that time in the early 70s, motocross was becoming exploding. It was in 73, 74, motocross was exploding. And, uh, you know, in the after I graduated from high school, uh, my dad, who was a tool and die maker, he wanted me to be a machinist. And I uh, so I went and he got me a couple of jobs in San Diego as a machinist. And I learned a lot about good machining skills. And I'd been watching my dad my entire life uh, as a tool and die maker. But it just was not my thing. My dad. So after a couple of years of trying that, I said, Dad. Uh, I have buddies in Riverside, California, and that's where racing is happening. I want to go up there, and I, I want to build the fastest racing engines in the world. And my dad was pissed. <laughs> he said, you're you're never going to be anything but a grease monkey. You're wasting your life. I said, okay, well, maybe. And so I moved to Riverside. And at that time, Riverside was the nucleus of motorcycle racing, uh, both dirt track, flat track, road racing, everything. And I made a whole bunch of friends in all those different racing genres. And, uh, um, and my my basic mantra was, hey, you let me do modifications on your engines and whatever breaks, I'll pay for it. And so that at that time, there was no reasonable racer that wouldn't take up on that deal. And uh, I, I had a lot of hungry weeks where I had to buy a guy a crankshaft or a couple of pistons or something. But in the big scheme of things, it it uh, it worked out, and I started working in a lot of different motorcycle shops in the San Bernardino Riverside area, and uh, I uh, the real key to it for me was uh, Corona, the raceway was the absolute hotbed of amateur racing, both flat track, motocross, Grand Prix, everything. So I got an apartment that was up against the back of a Corona Raceway. And I was broker than broke. I had a job at the local Honda shop on creating motorcycles. And so I would jump the fence uh, into the Corona Raceway facility and, and go back into the pits and go up and down the pits and try and find guys who would let me work on their motorcycle and said, hey, I've got a job at the Honda shop. Uh, let me work on your CR125. If anything breaks, I'll buy you the parts because I work at the Honda shop. And that's kind of how I got people to let me do tuning and and so forth on their bikes. After about a year of that, I started having quite a bit of success. And there were I was working on the uh, local 125 Pro bikes uh, for many guys riding 120 YZ 125s, Sierra 125s. And so I, I had a little bit of a following, uh, but. And the thing was, there was nobody to talk to. There was, I mean, uh, it was uh, 40 years before the internet. You couldn't Google anything. The, right. the only way to learn anything, you had to find a guy who knew. And the list of guys was very, very short. And if you found one of those guys, generally, they wouldn't talk to you on the phone and they didn't answer a lot of questions. 
So you were kind of on your own. Yeah, they wanted you to spend money. Yes, yes. Um, uh, so uh, so I did that circuit around the Riverside San Bernardino area. Uh, I, I worked uh, for uh, uh, at a Can-Am shop in San Bernardino, uh, which worked out real well because I had a lot of rotary valve experience with the uh, uh, G31M Kawasaki's and Bighorns that I had worked with in road racing. So um, we actually had some pretty fast Can-Am uh, motocross bikes during the time I worked at that shop, but they had financial difficulties. So I moved to another shop in Fontana uh, called uh, John Coutet's Kawasaki of Fontana. John was a great guy and he was a racing enthusiast and he just wanted to sponsor somebody. Well, at that time, Rex Staten had just been let go from his factory Honda contract and he lived in Fontana. And so John wanted to sponsor Rex Staten on something. And he was an OSA dealer. So he said, ah, uh, you know, how about uh, uh, you build an OSA for Rex Staten? And I go, okay, no problem. And uh, uh, I, I did the full build. The bike was actually real fast, but OSAs of that period had, they didn't have primary gears, they had a primary chain. And Rex was real hard on equipment. And after a couple of races, the thing would spit a primary chain and destroy the entire motor. Oh. And I thought, yeah, okay, enough of that. Um, and so Rex uh, got a sponsorship with CZ, and it was what we call a backdoor sponsorship. You know, we got bikes, some parts, and uh, uh, but it was something. And his dad asked me if I would be his mechanic. I, they gave him two fifties and four hundreds. I said okay. And uh, before I get into this, let me let me back up just a little bit. It's important to understand because I, I know your focus is ATV racing. No, this is this is great. I mean, this is great. Yeah. We'll get to the we'll get to the three wheelers and the ATVs and stuff in, in time. So and and, and well, let me just put it in context. The important part is the ATV racing. It really set on fire about 78, 79 and accelerated at warp drive um into the middle 80s but um <clears throat> to be prepared for how fast the uh, atv racing scene was going to explode you had to already have a ton of racing experience to be ready for the pace that things moved at and so everybody who was in the atv racing thing at the time had come from motocross backgrounds or desert racing backgrounds or a background somewhere else where they already knew when you're in racing, especially at that time, um, you got to show up every single weekend without fail, put in 14 hours days, seven days a week. And if you don't show up for one week, you're a month behind. And that's the way the racing world was. Oh, yeah. um, uh, so and so anyway, uh, uh, back to the Rex Staten thing. Uh, he got a uh, uh, factory CZ ride, and God, uh, there are no uh, no company was more arrogant and stupid than uh, Czechoslovakians at CZ. They gave us a bike to prepare for the U.S. Grand Prix in 1975 at Carlsbad, and it was a real piece of crap. Some desert racing bike that they got from Jim Fishback, who was a, a uh, a speedway racer and Jim was a great guy and a decent uh, 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 a desert racer 
But the bike was just garbage. I mean, it had handlebar perches still welded onto the handlebars. And so they gave us the bike and uh, 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 Rex Staten's dad, who was a tough cookie from the old days, he said, you know what, we're just going to take this bike and make it everything we can make it. And uh, uh, because before then, uh, Rex's dad, his nickname was Slim. Slim wanted me to keep all the engines stock. I want to do modifications on all of his 250 and 400 races, but Rex would win every race we ever went to locally in Southern California without a modified engine. But he said, Harry, he said, for this, uh, we're going to need a modified And so you do whatever you think you got to do. And I said, well, I can make it make a lot of horsepower, but it might not have a wide power bed. He said, that's okay. Rex knows how to use a clutch. I said, okay, I'm in. And uh, so we tested with the bike over the course of four weeks and didn't go to any races. We just tested and tested, tested. And boy, by the time we were done, the thing was just an absolute rocket ship. And it's important to understand Rex and I were both just 20 years old. So let and, me let me stop you and ask a couple of questions before we go on. When you say you guys went out testing, what did that entail? Well, I had had so much uh, tuning experience from my road racing days. I knew what I was looking for, but there was a translation where things had to translate from pavement racing to to motocross applications. And uh, uh, thank God, uh, Rex was pretty good at diagnosing problems and explaining what was going on. So I was able to to do the fine tuning to make the bike do everything we needed it to do. Um, uh, Because yeah, I mean, at that time, uh, and even later on when I got my job at DG Performance, um, I was known as the road race guy. Because in the motocross world, nobody had ever heard of me. Nobody would seen me. Um, and that's what made it all, all the more uh, outlandish. When we showed up at the 75 USGP, it was Rex and me, two 25-year-old or two 20-year-old kids in a box van. And we had this CZ we'd been working on for four weeks developing and went out there and uh, against the best in the world, we qualified fifth. And uh, we had raced at uh, at Carlsbad so many times. To me, it was just another weekend. But Rex was feeling especially good. The bike was running especially good. And I said, okay, we're, we're, we're going to be able to finish decent. And the longer we ran the bike, the more tuning I did to it and the faster it got. And it just got faster and faster every time we ran it. Um, so we show up on race day. And on race day, Rex gets the whole shot in the first moto and drives away from Roger DeCoster on his factory Suzuki. And Rex is gone because Rex knew that racetrack like the back of his hand. And the CZ had all the horsepower it needed to do the job, even though it wasn't the best handling bike in the world. Rex had the talent to make it look good. Well, about halfway through the race, all of a sudden, the bike's coming past the pit area where all the mechanics are, and Rex's bike is making some nasty rattling noise. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, I forgot to tighten an axle or he did. So just the things going through in my mind, I couldn't believe it. And so Rex 
Rex's lead shrank and shrank. Finally, Roger DeCoster caught him. And then Rex kept falling back a little bit. By the end of the race, race Rex had fallen back to seven. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get fired by Rex's dad for doing something stupid. Went into the pits. And Rex had a new sponsor, a guy named John Bassett of Bassett Racing. He built boat headers. And this Bassett guy, he was like a fabricating wizard. So we get into the pits and we're all gathered around. I'm trying to figure out what in the world went wrong with the bike to make it slow down. And I'm looking at uh, the swing arm, the rear axle, everything. And this John Bassett guy looks at it and goes, Harry, every single motor mount is broken. And the only thing holding this engine in the frame is the pipe and the chain. And all of the motor mounts were broken in a real jagged fashion because the engine literally had ripped itself out of the frame from the power. And because <laughs> we hadn't had, had the enough time to do long-term testing, we didn't know that was going to happen before we showed up for the race. So, um, so John, he was this epic fabricator. And I said, John, I, I've got a spare bike in the chassis and in, in the truck. I can you know, change the chassis. There's not enough time. He goes, no. He says, I'm going to find a gas welder. We're going to weld. The, the, all the jagged edges of the motor mounts fit right back in place. We're going to weld the motor back into the frame. And I thought he was out of his mind. The guy was a genius and one of the best welders I'd ever seen. And he laid down perfect gas wells, welded all the motor mounts back into the chassis. And because uh, you only had 45 minutes in between races and he's welding on the bike and I'm doing all the race prep. And just about the time we get the call to go to the second moto, he's done welding. And I said, John. And I, I mean, the welds, I looked at them, they were arch quality welds. I said, John, are those welds going to hold on for a second moto? He says, yeah, but the Czechoslovakian metal right next to the weld, it's going to break again. And I was about to ask him how long that would take. And then the call came for we needed to go up. So uh, I wheeled the bike and, and started taking the starting line. And uh, I, the chassis was so hot, I burned my leg on the chassis a few times, pushing it to the starting line because everything was so hot from the welding. Well, uh, Rex got up there and uh, God, he did as great a job as he could. Um, and and still salvage a seventh place out of it. Uh, because about halfway through the second race, the motor mounts all broke off in the same places, and he was riding around with a motor that wasn't connected to the chassis and still got a seventh out of it. Well, even though it wasn't the best performance of ever uh, uh, in the world, he was the first American that had ever led the USGP ever, and he led it for 10 laps riding away from Roger DeCoster. And at that time, that was huge news. So it kind of put me on the map. Well, as soon as uh, we got back, we went to the CZ uh, race shop that, that you know, uh, was our parts supplier. And, uh, and, <clears throat> and we figured we would take the broken bike back to them and they would give us some fresh center port factory bikes to replace them. And they said, okay, well, yeah, here, here. Uh, unload the bikes, unload your parts, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay. And I had all of my diagrams and everything from everything I had done to the bike because it was obviously 
the fastest CZ on the entire planet Earth. They had never built anything that went that fast or led that many laps in a in an open GP. And after they got all the bikes and parts, they had a meeting with Rex. And then Rex came out to the track or out to the truck, and we got in the truck and started driving home. I go, what's up? And he said, well, you know, they said the bike they gave us as it was could have easily won the race. But the modifications you made, you made to the bike were so defective, it caused the chassis to break. And they will not let you touch any of my CZ motorcycles anymore. And I thought, oh, my God. So his CZ ride lasted for about a month after that until he and his dad both realized the guys at CZ were idiots. And uh, and so I needed to find another job. At that time, <clears throat> a, a good friend of mine, one of the 125 pros I had met at Corona a couple of years earlier, um, he had gotten really good and he had made friends with the owner of DG Performance, a guy named Gary Harlow down in Anaheim. And so he said, Harry, he says, you're smart enough to work for these guys at DG. So I, he took me down there introduced me to Gary Harlow at DG. And at that time, Honda CR125s ruled everything and nobody else could break in. So Yamaha had given DG Performance a ton of YZ125s the first year of the Monoshocker and said, man, just make these things go, make them win, make them fast. And they had a lot of problems. And so when I went in, uh, their race shop was absolutely chaos. Nobody was in charge of anything. And uh, he, he said, listen, he said, can you, he said, so you're supposed to be a tuner. You're the guy who built the Rex Staten bike. Can you make me a case read YZ125? I go, sure. So he went into his back room and got some brand new crankcases, brand new cylinders, brand new everything. I'd never seen that before in my life. He said, here, take all these parts, bring me back a case read 125. Well, he fully expected to never, ever see me again, ever. <laughs> and a week later, I showed up with a Case Reed 125 motor. And he couldn't believe what he was seeing. And he hired me on the spot to run his race team and his research and development department. And so I did that for the next four years. Now, the first year at DG was difficult because there was no organization, no nothing. And I knew how race teams were supposed to work. And at the same time, you know, their race bikes were not that fast. So I had a lot of experience uh, doing 125 development, both from my road racing days and from working on the local pro race bikes in Corona. So the great part was they had unlimited amounts of parts. So I would prototype dozens of things. There was no limit to the parts I had to test and prototype with. And if you have that many parts, it didn't take long before you come up with something really, really fast. And by spring of 1996, the DG YZ125s and CR125s were the fastest privateer 125s in all of America. And so... Uh, they had some hero riders lined up. Uh, the pro 125 rider, Yamaha riders were Mark Tyre and Jim Doman. And in the amateur class, they had this kid named Brock Glover, 
he was only 15 <laughs> at the time, so he couldn't race in a national, but they had like a junior national that raced on Saturday. So we went to the 1976 um, uh, Hangtown motocross opener. Hangtown was the big race where the first national every year, everybody had their new stuff. <laughs> well, at this race, the two DG125 Yamahas got the whole shot, first and second, in both motos. But we didn't have the suspension of the factory bikes. And that was the, the first race where Bob Hanna showed up with the water-cooled Yamaha 125. And so uh, Bob eventually won that, that race. Um, but after uh, the race, and, and Brock Glover won the Saturday race on his DG1CR125 Honda. So DG got kind of put on the map. So the week after that race, the guys at Yamaha R&D, who gave us all our parts and our bikes and everything, they said, hey, those bikes that you raced on Sunday, can you bring them over here and let us dyno test them? Well, I was not in a position to say no. So I said, okay. <clears throat> so I schlepped the bikes as, as they came off the racetrack, took them down to Yamaha so they could dyno test them. And they it took them a couple hours to hook it all up. And back at that time, dynos were really complicated to hook up. They got it all hooked up. And then they started making dyno passes like for about an hour. And it, it, I don't know if you've ever been to dyno testing, but it's louder than hell. Yeah. And it's a terrible atmosphere. Nobody can talk. Well, finally, they did the last dyno test and the engine shut off. Everything's quiet. And the head engineer looks over at me and goes, this thing makes one horsepower more than Bob's factory Yamaha. Can we take it apart and look at it? Well, obviously, I was in no position to say no, because they had given us all the parts and given us the bikes and everything. So they did, and they spent a couple hours doing that. But after that, it really put DG on the map, and it kind of put me on the map as well. And, uh, and so then we had manufacturers calling the DG race shop all the time, wanting to give us bikes uh, to do development work on because we knew uh, or it appeared we knew what we were doing. Suzuki called us to give us the very first RM125As, uh, which was a leap, giant leap over the TM125s they've been selling. Husqvarna called us to say if they could give us some uh, Husqvarna 125CRs to see what development we could do with those. And so we had tons of work going on in the DG race shop. And, uh, and it was just the, the most intense uh, um, time uh, of racing that I had ever experienced. But, you know, for me, it was never about winning races. Um, it was all about gathering information. You know, in the racing industry, there's a famous saying, there's no substitute for cubic inches. <laughs> but the reality is there is. Um, because the guys who really win are the guys who have the most information and the guys who do the best preparation. And you don't have to have budgets to do that. And I knew that. So I focused on just gathering as much R&D information from all these race engines as I possibly could. And it didn't take long before 
all of the numbers started to kind of come together where all these engines responded real positive to exactly the same data. And uh, the only way you could know that is if you worked with all those engines and gathered the data. Well, at that time, there were no computers. And so I, I kept all this data on graph paper of all the port timings, compression ratios, all the, the reams and reams of data, and uh, hoping that I would come up with some magical formula that would tell me how to make a race engine perfect. Well, never actually happened, but actually I got closer than anybody else got. And that was good enough for the era. And so, uh, so during the four years I worked for DG, they pretty much had the fastest racing, racing machinery there was. The only problem was at as time unfolded, um, they, uh, uh, you know, they were a business, they were in the business of selling parts, pipes, heads, carbs, that kind of stuff. And so when new bikes came out and they came out every year at that time, they said, oh, we have all these orders for these carbs for an RM125. I said, well, I have not done any testing with that. I, I don't have any data. And he said, well, we have all these orders. We need to fill the orders. I go, I don't care. You need to fill the orders. I don't have data. Well, we have orders for pipes, too. We need pipes. I go, I haven't done testing with pipes. That's going to take a month or two. We don't have a month or two. We need to fill these orders. And so it became a, the, the kind of a push pipe between the race shop and the sales department, because uh, obviously all the sales guys, they got sales commissions, they want to sell a lot of parts, but I couldn't create horsepower from thin air. Well, that kept on till about 1979. And eventually I said, you know, I, 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 I gather data, I don't fill parts orders. And so uh, uh, DG and I separated ways. Uh, because I, I just couldn't meet their needs. Was that a positive? Um, was it a positive split? Um, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they were under the impression they didn't really need me anymore, and um, you know, I'd been working seven days a week um, for four years, and it was getting to a point where I was starting to get sick because I was just worn out. Nobody can do that forever. So then I took about a year off. Um, I worked for a, a, a moped importer called Derby Motor Corporation. And the reason I took the job was uh, Derby in Europe, they're a huge road racing uh, machine. They, they have a giant heritage of, of small bore road racing machinery and world championships, 50 and 125 CC. And so I was kind of excited to go to work for them and not have to show up at the races on Sunday. I had never, until then, and until I left DG, I had never not worked on a Sunday. I remember the first weekend after I left DG, the gal I was dating said, hey, let's go to Sunday brunch. I said, what in the hell is that? She says, oh, it's where you go like around 10, 11 o'clock. All these restaurants have Sunday brunch with unlimited champagne. I go, that's bullshit. That's a lie. <clears throat> we went and sure as heck, we went to some nice Mexican restaurant, this gigantic food thing, all the champagne you could drink. And I realized, oh, my God, I've been leading such a sheltered life. I have never, ever heard of Sunday brunch because I've been working for the last four years every Sunday. How so, did you have time to how did you have time to meet a gal? Um, at the races. 
and but and that's tough because you know at the races all of the girls in the pits they're there to meet these uh muscular buffed out racing guys and nobody uh wants to date them the only time any girl was nice to a mechanic was if she wanted to actually meet the racer and uh so yeah it uh it, it wasn't the greatest way to meet women but uh eventually i got lucky you know uh, uh so uh um, that's pretty cool so i stopped the the dg thing did did derby and the mopeds and actually after about three or four months i got a little bit bored and all these dealers and they had a giant dealer network they wanted to buy high performance parts for these 50 cc mopeds i go hey i know the people in the racing industry who make the pipes i know how to get pistons so we can do big bore kits and in like a couple of months i created a complete product line of high performance parts for mopeds <clears throat> and we called it MoFast. And uh, so I did that for about a year. The great part was I said, hey, I'm not going to races every Sunday. I'm just not doing it. And uh, so uh, I made extra money on the side, um, but it really wasn't racing. And I had a lot of people chasing me down, uh, wanting me to do development work for racing. <clears throat> During that same time, and that was uh, 7980. That's when uh, Mitch Payton's uh, parent, uh, his parents had uh, had purchased him a shop called Anaheim Husqvarna. And I'll back up a little bit on that. Um, when I was doing development work for Husqvarna at DG in 1976, I developed a nice engine package for the Honda or the Husqvarna 125s for motocross. Well, Husky called me and said, hey, listen, we've got this kid who's desert racing those 125s, and we want to give him the best stuff we can have. Do you have a, a spare top end set you can give him? I go, yeah, sure. No problem. I got a spare top end set for my test rider here. Send him over. Well, the, the kid was Mitch Payton because uh, he was a, a pro-level 125 desert race, racer at the time. So I gave him the top end, and I said, here's what you need to do with carburetor and blah, 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 and sent him off. Well, I never heard back from him. I didn't know if he got to run the top end or not. Uh, but a few months later, I heard that he had been seriously injured. Man, I felt horrible about that. And so I crossed paths with him after I'd left DG when he had this Anaheim Husqvarna shop. And, <clears throat> and he was, when I met him, he was just like me in 1975. He was this sponge wanting to absorb information and no place to absorb it from. And I was done with DG, so I had no problem saying, hey, you know, and he wanted to make a Husqvarna racing team. And I was the only guy he had known that ever made a Husqvarna go fast. So I said, here, we need to do this, do that. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to show you, the, you know, the basics of what you need to do. And, you know, it's it's not a situation of, and, and boy, it's just it's so important to me, you know, because I tell this story and people say, so you taught Mitch Payton everything he knows? I go, no, no, no. I took the time to teach Mitch Payton some basics of what it took, the, the basic building blocks and tools of how to do racing engines, do cylinder porting and all that stuff. But Mitch Payton learned everything he knows. And he didn't learn all of it from me, but I was very lucky to be the guy who was there at the very beginning to make sure at the very least he had, 
you know, a good foundation of of, of decent information to start off from. And uh, needless to say, he did very well with that. And he went out, uh, of course, to be successful beyond anybody's dreams, mine included. And I'm just very proud that I got to be a little piece of the nucleus of where he started out from. You, so, you didn't, you didn't uh, spend any time with his race team or do anything? Well, like yeah, that? actually, for about the first two years of Anaheim Husqvarna and Pro Circuit, I did all the cylinder porting uh, for Pro Circuit and uh, and helped Mitch with the development of, you know, top end sets, compression ratios, porting and all that stuff. Um, but then I started getting really busy doing other things. And Mitch was chopping at the bit to do it. And I go, God, I'm so damn busy here. This is this is what you need to know. This is what you need to do. Start here. And I promise you, you're going to screw up a bunch of parts. Don't worry about it. Everybody does it. Uh, but if you keep doing enough of them, uh, you'll screw up less parts and come up with more good parts. And needless to say, he did exactly that. That's pretty cool stuff right there. And uh and so anyway, uh, you know, I had started my own company at that time called Clem Research. And the reason I chose that name was I didn't want it to be a company like DG where we sold everything for everything. I said, I'm going to pick a few machines that I'm going to do development work on. And we're just going to do that and only that. And if and because there were so many different bikes of different displacements, nobody on earth could do development on all of them. Uh, The one thing I want to say, I want to back up just a little bit during DG. When I was still with DG, in 1977, the first Honda Odyssey came out. And it was a sensation. And so the thing is, uh, no motocross guys knew how to work on it because it didn't have a gearbox. It had a Salisbury centrifugal clutch with belts and... uh, and it was a whole different technology you had to master. And the, all the, the DG sales guys said, hey, anything you can make for these Honda Odysseys, we can sell a million of them. I said, okay. So of course we developed a pipe and a carb kit and a clutch kit and a few other things. <clears throat> and actually we, the, we made the things where they were a hell of a lot faster than the stock ones. And they started racing Odysseys. And I thought, okay. And so DG said, listen, they're racing Odysseys. We need to put together a race team uh, and go racing. And I said, okay. So I knew a couple of guys uh, from my motocross years, uh, and they were getting into Odysseys. I said, why don't you two guys? I said, it, it was Jim and Tim Hoover, Hoover Brothers. And they were totally into it, and they were ready to do anything it took. And they were rough and tumble motocross guys, so they were all in. And so we put together a small race team. And we went to different um, uh, racetracks in Southern California. And it was just the very beginning of ATV racing because they were still racing 90cc fat tire uh, ATC 90s. And so compared to those things, Odysseys were rocket ships. <laughs> and uh, and so, um, so anyway, we went to the races and uh, they all went well. But then I started realizing, you know, this is a different genre than motocross because motocross was very much a a win on Sunday, sell on Monday kind of world. The ATV uh, industry was way different because it was all older guys, not teenage kids. And um, 
and they, uh, if you went out and kicked their butt, they didn't want to come down and buy your parts. They wanted to come up with a different way to kick your butt at the next race. And I saw that unfolding and I thought, this race team is not producing sales, it's producing competitors. It's producing people who are pissed off at us for winning so much. And I realized it would it is possible to have a race team that is so successful, it's counterproductive. And so right. we shut down, completely shut down the Odyssey race team because it was not helping us sell parts. <clears throat> it was just pissing off customers who thought they could do it better. Uh, that was a big lesson right? for me. Uh, so anyway, but that was my first experience in the ATV genre. And I, uh, from that, I learned ATV racing was way different than motocross racing. Later on, when I started Clem Research, um, you know, uh, when I started Clem Research, uh, Kawasaki wanted me to be an engine provider for their newly formed amateur team green race team uh, doing 80s, 125s, that sort of thing. And we did that, had great success with it, terrific results. But after about three years, um, by 1982, 83, Honda came out with the ATC 250R and uh, and the ATV scene just exploded. And then Yamaha came out with the Tri-Z and it got even bigger. And then Honda came out with the 350 Odyssey and the the ATV universe completely eclipsed all motocross projects uh, at, at Clem Research. And uh, we were one of the few shops giving a lot of attention to the, uh, to the ATV platforms. So uh, Kawasaki asked us to do development uh, for what would later on be their race team. Uh, for for the Kawasaki three wheeler race team, and uh, and you know, the, everything was going great guns, and then one day <clears throat> I received a call from Suzuki from the guy who ran the Suzuki race team. The guy's name was Coach Koyama, and he was the guy who gave me all the RM eighties and RM one twenty fives during my DG days. So he and I had a really good working relationship. He said, Harry. He said, I need you to come up uh, here to headquarters and take a look at some machinery we got, uh, some new bikes, uh, which he he had made that phone times in the past was a DG. I said, okay, no problem, Tosh, I'll come up. So I went up there and uh, and met with him. And uh, he said, listen, we need you to sign all these papers. Like, you're not going to talk about anything you see here. I go, man, really? Are you kidding me? Like. Okay, I'll sign anything. I don't care. So I had to sign all these non-disclosure, secrecy, blah, blah, blah. And he says, okay. And they take me in the race shop. And there were two uh, Suzuki 250 quad racers there. They were the first two pre-production 250 quads on earth. And uh, he said, what do you think? I said, well, I don't know. I said, I, I guess I need to ride one. He says, oh, take him for a ride. And so I, there was a big dirt field next to Suzuki headquarters at that time. So I, I mean, I'd been riding high-powered three-wheelers for many years, so I knew what fast ones felt like. And man, I'll tell you that, I mean, it was fast enough, but man, when you put it into a turn, it turned like nothing else. 
And I thought, oh, my God. And I, when I got back, he said, what do you think? I thought, man, you're going to kill every three-wheeler on Earth with this thing. And he says, yeah. He says, we kind of know. But, you know, the problem is we need a four-wheeler racer. But there's no such thing as a four-wheeler racer because there's no four-wheelers. And we don't know what to look for. And I said, oh, I know exactly what to look for. What you need is a guy who is a whole shot expert. Because if a guy can get a whole shot on this, nobody can pass him. Well, during my DG days, head and shoulders, the best whole shot pro expert was a 125 pro motocrosser named Gary Denton. And uh, he had kind of retired out of motocross because he had peaked and uh, everybody was looking for younger riders than him. So I said, man, I know this guy. I'm going to track him down. It took me about two weeks to find Gary Denton because I knew we had a lot of mutual friends. He was a used car salesman in Chino. And I <laughs> called him up. I go, Gary, listen, listen, I, 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 there's this race bike. You need to ride it, man. You need to race it. He goes, no, Harry. I'm done racing. I'm, uh, you know, it's way too expensive. I can't afford to do it. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, 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 I'm not interested. I got a good job here selling used cars. I go, no, Gary, this is different. I, I, I said, you don't got to pay a penny. I'll pay all the entry fees. I'll pay for everything. All you got to do is show up with gear to ride. And so, uh, so I said, come on down to my shop and you can ride it. I, I, I was looking around for the Polaroid. He came down to my shop and rode it around uh, up and down the street in front of my shop. The first, because it, it was the first pre-production prototype quad. And he rode it around. He goes, wow, this thing's pretty cool. And I took a Polaroid picture of him pulling back in the shop. I have it somewhere in my photo files. I, I downloaded the picture onto Facebook. It's somewhere on my Facebook page. Anyway, so he said, okay, uh, okay. He said, so listen, I don't got to pay anything. I don't got to pay entry fee. I don't got to pay for gas. I don't got to pay for nothing, right? I said, oh, that's right. I'll pay for everything. So at that time, they were having uh, regular Thursday night races at Corona. And so we should, you know, I spent a couple of weeks doing development on the engine because it was kind of an RM250 motor I was familiar with. So I already knew the specs it needed to really run strong. And so we showed up with this four-wheel thing. Nobody had ever seen a four-wheeler ever before and i had uh i said okay gary he did practice he was comfortable and he raced it like in three different classes got the whole shot and blew the doors off every three-wheeler in every class every pro class all night long and we did that for about three weeks and then i got a call from tosh kayama and suzuki he says hey listen we want to start up a factory race team. Do you think you can get this Gary Denton guy to sign up as a as a factory racer? And I said, well, I know he's got this used car thing he really likes, but I'll talk to him. Well, as things unfolded, of course, uh, Gary was the first ever factory Suzuki quad racer uh, ever. And the rest is history, of course. Um, uh, but that that's how that all started and unfolded. Do you know how much he got paid? I, I do not. I, you have to ask him about that. <laughs> he would never tell me. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised. He's not big on telling. <laughs> no, no. But so how long did you work with the Suzuki race team? 
Well, um, you know, uh, the thing is, the thing I cared most about was just having access to the bike because uh, Toast told me we're going to make a lot of these, like a lot. So I'll let you do all the development. And actually, he was willing to give me a whole bunch of spare pre-prototype parts, parts that didn't exist for anybody else. And uh, he said, you can burn up a bunch of parts making the thing go fast. Um, and when we finally release the bikes, you'll be the only guy who's got all the modification stuff done. And uh, that was a terrific leg up. And boy, when they started selling quads, my company, Clem Research, already had all the engine kits developed, pipes, everything. And we sold it like there was no tomorrow. Um, it was just an, an, a bonanza for us. Um, and, you know, the thing is, the factory team, once they, once they signed Gary, they brought all that stuff in-house. And once they bring racers in-house, they keep all of that stuff very closed into themselves. They don't share any information. But Tosh knew that I, I didn't need their information anyway because I was good to go on my own, uh, which uh, uh, unfolded to be the correct, you know. Um, so, and, you know, the thing is that uh, for me, the greatest part about that whole story is not, you know, that I quote unquote made Gary Denton or anything, but I feel like I was very lucky to have been a person who was there at the ground floor to make the decisions um, to put the right person in the right spot to achieve the right things uh, because he went on to achieve things I could have never imagined. Um, and, uh, and then, so I'm, I'm very proud that I just got to be there. And, you know, that's what eventually uh, turned into his uh, primary vocation because as he was racing quads, that's when the, the company weekend warriors started up and they said, Hey, we got these trailers. We want you to drive your race bike around the country to all these races in our weekend warrior trailers, promote the trailers. Well, he did that for four or five years and they sold a gajillion trailers because it was a great idea. Well, after he retired from racing, he went to work at Weekend Warrior and uh, became their uh, West Coast sales manager. And after working there for about five or six years, he became the national sales manager and the VP of sales because nobody could talk a better line of bullshit than Gary Denton. Right. And so so it was uh, I, I mean, and he did very, very well with his deal at Weekend Warrior. So it was about 10 years later, um, I was deciding to go uh, motorcycle road racing and I needed a toy hauler. So uh, I was talking to my buddy to say, hey, you know, Gary Denton actually works for a toy hauler place, this weekend warrior place. I said, no way. Gary Denton has a job? And <laughs> I couldn't even believe he was employed. So the, oh, yeah, yeah, he's like some bigwig over there. So I called over to Weekend Warrior and uh, tried to get hold of Mr. Denton and got to his secretary like twice and said, oh, no, Mr. Denton's busy. I said, really? He said, no, no, uh, uh, can you leave a message? I said, yeah, uh, this is not a joke. After the third time of trying to get a hold of him, she said, I I'm sorry, you know, he's just busy. I said, well, you know what? My name is Harry and I'm his gay lover and I have some bad news for him. And Gary Denton called me about a half an hour later. <laughs> so, so anyway, we got on the phone and started chatting. 
And I said, hey, I, I wanted, I, I, you know, I mean, it was just regular racer BS. And I started chatting. I said, hey, I want to buy a taller. And he said, Harry, don't, don't buy one from anybody else but me. He said, listen, he says, I never got a chance to tell you this. He said, but, you know, when you called me at that car dealer in Chino and told me to come race that quad, I had no idea that you were going to completely and totally change my entire life. He said, my whole life changed at that minute. And you're the guy who did it with one phone call. And I, I felt very humbled. I go, well, I mean, I wasn't trying to make you famous. I just wanted somebody who knew how to get a whole shot. <laughs> and uh, he went on and on talking about how what a great opportunity it turned into and how well he had done and how it led to this job at Weekend Warrior. And I thought the guy was going to start crying, telling me the story. I said, Gary, it's all OK. It's OK. Can you give me a good deal on trailer? He goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, you got a good deal on trailer. So uh, and he did get me a very good deal on a Weekend Warrior trailer. Um, uh, so every once in a while, um, you know, uh, in uh, uh, giving people to opportunities pays dividends years down the road. And it did for me. That's pretty awesome stuff. <clears throat> can can I ask some questions about the some of the development of some of the things that you worked on that I know about? Absolutely. Go ahead. So um, and I don't know a lot about this. I've just been involved with some three-wheeler people that um really like you did some modifications on the tri-z and everybody that i know of in the tri-z world is still trying to duplicate them or get get those components or or find that kit and and run it what yeah. was so special about what you did well you know the thing is that um um, and that was another thing where the information gathering comes into play. Um, the Tri-C engine platform, actually, it's a really, really good platform, Yamaha YZ250. And it was a YZ250 platform that I had done a ton of development with uh, at DG. Um, and there was another DG, uh, a well-known DG pro racer named Dave Taylor. And him and Gary Denton were the best of buddies, and they raced against each other in 125 class all the time at Irwindale. But I did all this development on this 250 engine over months and months. And uh, Dave Taylor, uh, for him, for these guys at the time, there was night racing was the big money race, especially at Irwindale. And Taylor and Denton were the kings of Irwindale. They would go there every Friday night, and it was a $1,000 purse to win. And Gary would win the 125, and uh, Dave Taylor, with this 250 I developed, would whole shot and win 250 every single day. For And for, it was like, some like 30 or 40 weeks in a row. Wow. They, they won those races. So I had that engine real well-developed. So, and when the first Yamaha Tri-Zs came out, Yamaha called me because they knew who I was because I had worked uh, with them at DG on the other 125 projects. And they said, hey, you want one of these for development? I go, yeah, sure. And when I got it, I realized pretty much it was the exact same engine as this 250 I had been developing 
except it was water cooled. So you could get away with quite a bit more. And so it took me a very short amount of time to make those Tri-Zs an easy match for the Honda ATC 250s of the day. And uh, so uh, that really accelerated uh, Yamaha's um, path to competitive racing. And uh, yeah, you're right. There were a lot of guys who uh, gave up their Honda 250Rs for Tri-Zs. Well, one of the kits you specifically made was a big bore setup. Yes, uh, and uh, ironic you bring bring that up um, because, you know, uh, those were very popular. We sold a bunch of them back in the day. Well, you know, and, and it's important to understand that uh, um, in 86, my staff at uh, Clem Research, where we were so successful with ATVs, they bought me out. And But I had to take a clause of non-competition that I couldn't work on any ground vehicles. So I thought, ah, okay, I'm, I'm done with that. So uh, a friend of mine, uh, Bob Zantos, who owned a company called West Coast Performance, and uh, I knew him because he made racing swing arms for three-wheelers. He was in the jet ski business, and he needed someone to do R&D work for him uh, on jet skis. And I said, okay. So I got into that and eventually got into the jet ski aftermarket, which is what I've been doing consistently uh, from about 1990 uh, to current day. Well, during that entire time when I was working on jet skis, I would have these guys racing vintage motocross and three-wheelers finding me because my name was, uh, the company name was Group K. It didn't say Clem. So they had to do then. That was the internet. And so you couldn't just Google me. And so actually after they did create the internet and you could Google me, I mean, I had tons of guys calling me up saying, hey, Harry, we want you to build our vintage racing engines. And I said, listen, I'm so busy doing watercrafts. I just don't have the time. I can't do it. They go, no, 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 please just do it. Do it. I, I go, no, no. But they kept calling. And then after a while, they said, listen, we don't care how much it costs and we don't care how long it takes. Just do it. Well, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a business person. And if you've got a customer telling you they don't care what it costs, and they don't care how long it takes, you don't send that guy away. So we, uh, I began to put together all the tooling to rebuild the Tri-Z 350 big board kits. And I continue to sell them to this day. We probably sell one a month for probably the last five or six years. And nobody is more surprised about that than me. I can't even believe, A, that anybody knows what they are, or B, knows who I am or how to find me because I'm not that easy to find. But they do. And uh, I have guys call out of the blue at least once a week. Can you still make me a 350 big bore? And uh, uh, they're not cheap, but they're exactly the same as the ones we sold in 1985. That's pretty cool stuff right there. Um, and, and, you know, it's important to understand, that, as I mentioned before, I'm big on data. I'm big on information. A big part of that is saving all your data. And I was a stickler on that from beginning from when I actually my road racing days in the early 70s through CZ days with Rex, all the DG days. I had pages and pages and pages of data and I kept all of it. So when now 
when guys are calling me up wanting these big bore kits, I mean, I have all the original pages of data that I wrote in the middle eighties uh, with all the original specifications and everything. So it's all exactly the same stuff. So you kept all of your information when you sold the company? Apps, everything. Not only that, but before I left DG, they didn't even know what the data was. They didn't know, they wouldn't have known it if they were looking at it. So I I copied all the data from DG days as well. I I never threw away any data ever. And because uh, I have guys who are racing vintage motocross now, and they want to get DG replica race motors um, from the you know, the guys who actually built the engines in 1976 and 77. Well, I'm the guy. Right. And, and they, the, and they call up and, it's, and, and the thing is at group K, uh, I don't have a room full of kids doing it. Um, since I started group K in 1986 and in 1986, I decided I was not going to teach anybody how to port cylinders anymore. And I have ported every cylinder that Group K and Clem Vintage, all these all these cylinders we've done since 1986, I do them with these two hands. Um, I port hundreds of cylinders, less nowadays than I did during the uh, 90s and 2000s. But uh, I, I still personally do all the cylinder porting that is done by my company. And, people, uh, and people say, gee, why don't you teach somebody how to do cylinder porting? I go, well, yeah, you know, I did that in the past, but every time I've done that, I didn't teach an employee. I created a competitor. And he said, well, like, who was the last guy you taught how to port cylinders? He said, well, that would be Mitch Payton. And uh, so I'm not doing that again. Right. <laughs> but, well, I mean, two different worlds now, but yeah. Well, that's. Quite a yeah, competitor. But they, they kind of come together. So, yes. And, you know, the thing is that um, we started up this, uh, uh, you know, in the uh, in 2004, the watercraft industry was starting to go four stroke. And I thought, gosh, if this keeps going this way, I'm going to be out of work. And we just made a choice to not work on any four stroke PWCs. I said, I'm just going to work on the two strokes for as long as they last. But I need to have something fill in the void. So my brother and I, we started, decided to go vintage road racing with ARMA, the American Historic Racing Motorcycle Association. And uh, and because we raced 350 Bighorns uh, back in the early 70s, I said, hey, let's buy a few Bighorns, build up two race bikes, and go ARMA road racing. Well, uh, we took us about a year and a half to, I bought five bikes to build two. We built two race bikes. They were both 1972s. And I couldn't believe it when we got out there because, uh, again, I, I'm a big on gathering data. And we tested for 18 months. And when we went, and my brother and I, were not lightweights. We both weigh about 200 pounds dressed. Uh, those things would GPS at 105 miles an hour. Well, the next fastest bike racing in that class was a Honda CB350, and not a single one of them went over 85. And so we went out there and just annihilated them uh, in the year 2010, took first and second in every race we were in. 
and we're these two old fat guys they had never seen before, never heard of, and we cleaned everybody's clock, won every race, won the championship, and at the end of the championship, they banned our bikes because they can. And uh, so, uh, um, but the thing is, during the course of uh, doing all that, you know, racing is expensive. And I said, uh, told my brother, I go, you know, we're spending so much money on racing. I'm going to create a second company uh, just so I have something I can write off all this racing to for tax write-offs. And we called it Clem Vintage. And Clem Vintage is what does all these. We only do air-cooled two-strokes and two-stroke ATVs from the era. And so uh, uh, as things unfolded, Clem Vintage business became about 50% of my business. 50% was watercraft and 50% was Clem Vintage. And it's still that way today. Uh, we developed all kinds of modifications for, you know, air-cooled two-strokes from, um, uh, from the 70s. You know, after the Bighorn thing, uh, I built a Kawasaki 500 triple in H1, which is a, you know, a pocket rocket from back in the early 70s. Right. And uh, after they arm abandoned our bikes, we built three bikes, an H1 and a couple of Bighorns, and went to Bonneville, and we set three Bonneville land speed records because uh, they have vintage classes in Bonneville. And uh, and I thought, man, that wasn't so hard. And so, but. Uh, uh, you know, it, it just got to where I realized all I had to do was choose what I wanted to win and dominate because literally I had more data, more information than anybody we were racing against. So we kind of backed away from racing and just focused on doing engine work for customers. And that's where we're at now. My brother and I, we don't race anymore. We don't do Bonneville or the road racing. Uh, and, you know, at the, the same time, uh, we're both in our early 70s, so we're not spring chickens. So we don't work as fast as we used to. Um, uh, so but, your, your brother works with you? Yes. In fact, you know, the one thing I got to say, and it's so important to underline, my brother, um, he, <sighs> my dad wanted me to become a machinist, and that did not work out. So I went off to become a motorcycle mechanic. But my older brother he went to work with my dad and worked for my dad for about 15 years and learned how to be a tool and die maker from my dad. And my brother is like an epic tool and die maker. Every single thing I ever made, every single thing I ever built, he was a part of it. He was the guy who did the real fine machine work of everything, all the crazy ideas I ever came up with. And uh, he has been my best friend and my work partner for the last 40 years. And I could not have done a single part of it without his help. None of it. So uh, um, it's very sad he doesn't get more credit. You know, within the industry, all the people who know me and know my businesses, all the people who are in the racing underground, they all know him. His name is Gerhardt. It's a German name. Everybody in the race business knows Gerhardt, but people outside the race, race business, nobody's heard of it. And to that extent, you know, there's an awful lot of people never heard of me either. Um, you know, because uh, uh, when uh, when they go looking for somebody who can build them a, a DG replica, uh, all that 
magazine articles and information is so old, nobody connects my name with all the work that happened back then. So it takes a, a lot of them detective work to even figure out, A, who I am, B, where, I, where I'm at, and and see what what data I have, you know. I I the, the the true ATV people know because you did a lot of development on the Ducatis as well. Yes, uh, for a brief amount of time, we were uh, uh, suppliers for uh, several of the engine sets for uh, Kawasaki. Because actually, uh, we also made a big bore kit for the Kawasaki three wheelers. Uh, it was a nine twenty seven big bore kit. And back in the day, actually, there was a real active 200cc class, and uh, we developed 200cc, uh, for lack of a better word, sleeve-down kits for the two, uh, Takati 253-wheeler, and the, they ran really, really well. They were very competitive. Well, all they had to do was beat, you know, uh, uh, the Honda ATC 204-strokes. And Curtis Sparks made some very fast 200 four-strokes, but running a four-stroke against a well-tuned, well-prepared two-stroke, especially a water-cooled two-stroke, that was a heavy lift. And it didn't take long for the Hondas to get obsolete in that 200 class. Uh, probably the only thing that harmed that was, at that time, Honda had a factory racing team, and they put the full budget of what they were able to produce into building ultra special custom 200cc water cool two-stroke Hondas uh, to race uh, against everybody else. And it, it turned into a scenario where the factories were just bludgeoning all the privateers to death with money. Um, and that never looks good, you know. Yeah, I was, I, I've never seen one up close, but I was told that those 200 uh, Hondas were State of the art, like nothing else on the industry out there. Well, I mean, they they ran ran really good, and it should be known. I mean, um, we had Kawasaki versions of the Kawasaki 200 that ran as well, but their budget was so big they could make those things weigh close to nothing. And with money, you can make if you can make a motorcycle lightweight or any race vehicle lightweight, uh, that's an advantage that nobody can match, and they had that advantage. Yeah, Kawasaki never seemed to spend as much, did they? Well, I mean, uh, the, the um, um, Honda's budget came out of their racing division. Um, Kawasaki's racing, all of Team Green, everything connected with Team Green and the race team, all came out of Kawasaki's advertising budget. And uh, so they had a different priority set because all, all these guys holding the purse strings of Kawasaki said, okay, well, you want us to give you all this money to develop these machines. Like, how many bikes are we going to sell from this? And it was a reasonable question to ask because to pay me to develop 200 cc D-bore kits, how does that help Kawasaki sell 250 Ducatis? A fair question. Well, at Honda, they didn't give a damn because, of course, they never made anything even close to the water-cooled uh, 200 cc's. And even back in the day, um, to, to to make 200 Hondas, it was a complicated project because I tried to do it. And I said, you know, that there are so many complications with this engine platform. I don't even want to get into it. I wouldn't do it because I had some some very well-financed, big-budget guys wanted me to build Honda 200s for them. And I said, it's just too complex. 
I've, I already got enough difficult projects in front of me. I don't need another one. And uh, so we never approached Honda 200 two strokes. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. And, and, and needless to say, Honda didn't sell more ATC 250Rs because of the 200 wins, you know, to, but if if you're involved in a professional racing team effort, uh, the considerations of budget go out the window because all they know is win, 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 uh, because their objective is to run win ads, talk about how they win. Um, it is not sales oriented as the Kawasaki racing effort was. Correct. Correct. Yeah, because all they all Honda was was about winning. Yes, exactly correct. And, you know, it comes back to that same thing where I talked about that Odyssey racing team. Uh, right. Honda achieved exactly the same problem area that I did. Was they were special 250 two strokes out, kicked everybody's butt, and nobody wanted to buy a Honda to go race in that class. All they want to do is come up with something else to kick Honda's butt. Um, so they actually dissuaded people from buying Hondas by doing that racing effort. And I learned that lesson in the 70s, so I knew better than to get into that crap. Right. Did you did you have any problems with um the development of, of the racing stuff later on? Like uh so you, what year did you sell your your place? Uh, 86. Uh, but the short answer to your question is, yes, there was a gigantic gap. And what that gap was, most of the ATV, two-stroke ATV engines, they were motocross engines, except they had to push around a lot heavier vehicles than any motocross bike had to. And they were under a whole bunch more load than any motocross bike. And because of that, they were doing harder work and they needed higher octane fuel. And that, that was the era where pump gas octane levels were coming readily, consistently down. You know, in 1970, you could buy 100 octane pump gas, but by 1978, you could only get 93. And that was not a small difference. And when by I the started, 90s, you could only get 91. When I started driving in, um, Gosh, in the 80s, I think. Um, yeah, in the 80s, pump gas was 91 octane. Well, I could buy, when I started driving, I could buy 105 at the pump here in town. Wow. Here in what town? Lakeside. Get out, really? Yep, you could still buy 105 at the wow. pump. Yeah, and you know, uh, for us, you know, the big turning point was, um, uh, uh, and uh, in the, the vocabulary of, of racing and high performance change is uh, how fast, you know, everybody wanted to go as fast as they could go, but nobody wanted to buy race gas. And I said, okay, this is how fast you can go on 91 octane. If you want to go faster, you have to buy race gas. And that and that created a giant divide in the market. And uh, boy, developing 91 octane uh, high performance equipment, that became very, very challenging. And, and that followed me into the, the watercraft business as well. Well, how do you deal with 
How do you deal with the water and chemicals now that they sell for gasoline? Uh, well, uh, yeah, um, it, it's not fun or easy, to be sure. Uh, and, you know, the only thing you can do is choose port timings and compression ratios that are a little bit more conservative. And, you know, the power you get is the power you get. And and the, we tell people, hey, if you want high performance, you got to pay to play. If you really want to make the big numbers, that's cool. We can do that by race gas. Well, nowadays, race gas is like really expensive, uh, but there are still guys who do it. Oh, yeah, that, well, I almost won't work on a carbureted machine that runs pump gas. Yeah, I, I don't blame you. Because the, the gas, so I've done doing a lot, I do a lot of testing with fuel because I work on so many carbureted stuff and I'm no brain surgeon. I have to base it on the information that I get from doing it. and you take your pump gas and you store it on the shelf within three weeks, you can get today's fuel to not burn when you throw a match in on it. Um, yeah. I mean, it does have a shelf life. You so, know, if you use perfectly sealed cans, it's less bad, but there's no such thing as good old gas. I mean, race gas has, it deteriorates slightly, but you could still use it. Yes. Yeah. You know, and 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 you pull it off the shelf after two years, throw it on the driveway, throw a match on it, and it, you know, you almost you better have a hose there so you don't burn the house down. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you, and and you know the gasoline thing uh, in the entire high performance market, no matter what genre machinery you're working in, that's been a nonstop moving target. And boy, it makes the uh, the high performance aftermarket very, very challenging. And the one thing I will say is, you know, that, you know, all the vintage motocross stuff we do nowadays and the vintage ATV stuff, I tell them right up front, listen, 100% pump gas. And they go, oh, no, I'm just going to use it for trail riding. Yeah, I don't know. I don't care if you're going to use it for burnouts in your driveway. You're going to have to run race gas. And then and, they don't get it. Yeah, they don't get it. I said, well, they I do just, the first time they fry a piston. Yep. And I, I I tell them, so here's the deal, guys. Gas in 87 was bad. We're 2023, and they've done nothing but make it worse and worse and worse. You're totally correct. You know, the corrosion factor. Have you dropped a brass jet in pump gas and let it sit on the shelf? Yeah, boy, it's not pretty. Nope. And then I've also seen where if you soak the aluminum in the gas long enough, it'll start to deteriorate the aluminum. Yeah. And we see a lot of that in the jet ski industry because people ride their jet skis all summer long and then they park them for eight months. Right. And uh, and we that is the nonstop theme of the recreational watercraft business. Yeah, it's, I, I don't even want to think about how horrible it is. Yeah. The fuel injection stuff doesn't seem to have the same issues. Yeah, because of the high pressures. Yeah. And and don't they make some of that stuff, the, the fuel injection systems, out of different materials so they don't have the same negative effect from sitting in, in pump gas so it doesn't deteriorate it the same? You are correct. They do. Yeah. And I mean, in the carburetor world, you know, they've 
they use a lot of uh, uh, special parts, you know, uh, Viton rubber for all of the rubber interior carburetor parts. And the Viton rubber, while it's expensive, it definitely resists uh, getting compromised, but none of it is forever. None of it. No, no. Uh, you know, Keyhine makes some pretty good quality stuff. So yeah, you don't have a lot of failures in that world. But man, I I, uh, I can't say I've worked on more carburetors than everybody else, but oh boy, I have a whole freaking, you know, 12, 14 foot long bench and I have more carburetor parts and and carburetors stacked up on there than you could imagine. Just yeah, I, I'm right there with you. Yeah, it's just crazy. And I just pump gas. Nope. Sorry, I don't want I won't do it. Well, and I'll tell you the biggest problem with it, and this applies both to uh vintage uh, ATV motorcycle carburetors as it does to personal watercraft carburetors. In the interior of those carburetor bodies, there are some really tiny orifices. Um, that they use for transition circuitry. And after they drill those orifices, they put a pressed steel plug over it. So there's no way to ever access that again in the future. And so even though a carburetor can look perfect on the outside, if it's been sitting for a number of years, those tiny orifices are clogged with what you're talking about. And you can't see it. There's no way to reach it, no way to touch it, no way to clear it, and the carburetor just becomes a paperweight. Right. Um, I have worked very diligently to find some solutions that don't seem to damage rubber, and I'm having some success with regenerating some of these some of these older carburetors. But it's wow. It's, I, I would be all ears for that. It's it's tough. It's super tough. Yeah. Because every time you find good good product to use in the wonderful state that I live in, they change the law and then you can't get that product. Yeah. Yes. You're totally correct. You know, I mean, I don't know what it's you live in Arizona, right? Um, yeah, but you know, the thing is that uh um we're close to California, so we get uh, a lot of the overrun from California. So, um, you know, uh, the but the one theme, and you're completely correct, you know, since uh, 1970, gasoline had become worse and worse and worse stuff every single year. And there is no expectation it's going to get better before it gets worse. Uh, the only thing you can do is use race gas. Right. And then in some cases, they're trying to outlaw that. Yes. Yeah, they are. Yes. Yeah. That's one of the good things about being in Arizona. We're probably going to be able to buy race gas for a lot longer than you might be able to in California. Uh, well, they've already stopped selling certain models of vehicles here in California because there's some kook running the state that thinks he knows. You know, it's just like electric vehicles. Really? That's not going to work, dude. Yeah. Politics is something I've never been good at. Well, I'm horrible at it because I just say what I think and, and what I know, and, and that goes over like a lead balloon. Well, politics and science do not play well together. Correct. Correct. Because the, the, when the truth comes out, the politicians don't want to hear it. Yes, you are right. Well, half of society doesn't want to hear it anymore, but that's a whole <laughs> other story. Um, 
what was it like back in the in the day developing exhaust systems for two strokes? How intense did that get for you? Well, I'll tell you, actually, that's a fair question. You know, and I learned a lot about that development when I worked at DG, because DG arguably sold uh, more expansion chambers for dirt bikes than just about anybody in the country. And I knew the guys who constructed them, did the prototyping and all that. And to be sure, uh, making expansion chambers was an art. And there were not a lot of guys who were really, really good at that art. Um, during the time that I had Clem Research, when we were doing ATV pipes, uh, there was a raft of every company was making pipes for ATVs. Um, uh, you know, the ATC, the Tri-Z, and the KXT, the standard deal. And uh, they were manufactured by Bassani, DG, and the half a dozen other different companies. And um, when we started doing development, um, you know, those pipes worked okay, but there, there was a lot left on the table. And, the, you know, after I talked to enough expansion chamber guys, they said, listen, you know, one of the things you got to do to make a pipe really perform is you can't make it out of thick 20 gauge steel. You got to make it out of 22 gauge steel, a thinner gauge. Problem with 22 is um, it um, fractures more easily. It's harder to weld. And uh, the other thing is when you make it out of 22, you have to hand pound all the seams. And so I, I broke down. I said, you know what? We're just going to make hand pounded pipes for everything. And what I'm going to do is not make any excuses. You could buy a Sony or DG pipe anywhere for 110 bucks all day long. And I said, we're going to make ours $280 but they're going to be the only ones that are made out of 22 gauge, the only ones that are hand pounded. And we did tons of testing. So I made sure they made more horsepower than anything. And they did. The problem is my pipe builder hated making them. And I didn't want to build an in-house pipe shop to start making them because God, they were just so labor and work intensive. And uh, what we would do is they became so popular we would take pre-orders for them and we made them in batches of 15 and you had to pay for the pipe and wait six to eight weeks to get it uh, till the pipe builders made it. And then we ship them when they were available. And we did that for about two years. And for two years, every hand pound pipe we made was sold before it was shipped. Well, now they, those hand-pounded 22-gauge Clem Research pipes, they sell on eBay for about 1200 bucks. Yeah, because you can't if find you them. Can, if you can find one. Yep. And uh, and so I, I, we have people calling me every day, say, oh, can you make Clem Research pipes? I go, yeah, dream on, buddy. That's not happening. Because to make that same pipe today would, would probably cost six or 700 bucks. And I got better things to do with my time. It costs way more than that, brother. Yeah, uh, you may be right on that. Yeah, because we're still making two-stroke pipes. Yeah, yeah. And it just the the, the cost is just astronomical. Yes. Um, because labor has gotten so expensive. And to get a quality person to make something out of steel or aluminum nowadays, 
Yes. Very you difficult. Know, yeah. And plus you're giving them some of your knowledge. And well, yeah, because if you teach somebody how to build the perfect pipe, um, the first time that orders start ebbing away, they go, hey, I can start selling pipes out of my garage. I'll buy some steel. And you all you've done is build another competitor. Right. You know, I love that. I love the analogy that my brother gave me for the two stroke time when we were when we were all doing it. He says, you know, the pie, we cut it into eight. There's eight slices and everybody's got a slice. You know, you, us, you know, everybody. And, and, and he goes, there's eight guys. So when we started transferring into the four strokes, at one point, there were 54 pipe manufacturers in the magazine. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And I never got into four strokes. So I, I never got into that genre. Yeah. Well, we stayed in the ATV world. So, and, you know, my dad's a tool and die maker. Wow. So uh, that's what was his, when, when he worked in aircraft, that's what he did. And we started with the four strokes, the, the, the nineties, you know, and my dad raced four stroke motorcycles back in the fifties and the sixties. Back in the day. Yeah. And then, yeah, we started with those nineties. So we went four stroke, two stroke, four stroke, and we still do a lot of two stroke stuff too. The restoration on the on the two fifty Rs and the Banshees and the LT five hundreds. Yes, yeah. I, I am forever impressed with how how popular those are. And I'll tell you, even in the jet ski business, uh, guys are restoring nineteen uh, nineties two stroke jet skis like there's no tomorrow because you can't find them anymore. They're reliable. They're easy to maintain. And uh, I thought they were gone forever. And guys are digging out old boats or old jet skis that that I never thought I would ever see anybody build. And my shop is filled with those engines right now. I have two of them yeah. for a, a friend of mine that I have gotten into. it. I don't do watercraft. So I'm having to learn all of this, you know. So guess who's guess who's going to be picking your brain? Ah, no problem. Because I just, I just don't know. I'm not, I don't like the water, you know, so ah. I never got into it. Yeah. Just as a footnote, um, you know, back in the day, um, we did uh, the best we could do to uh, uh, present as much data as we could on our website when the internet came into fashion. And my internet page is 800 pages of technical text. And we have a page about every single two-stroke PWC that was made during that era. Um, so uh, um, if he needs to know anything about any of those two-stroke jet skis, the data is there. Well, thanks for that. Now I'm going to be doing homework. Yeah. And boy, uh, make yourself some strong coffee because um, uh, it's hard to stay awake. When I built the website in 1995, it, you know, everybody was on dial-up. And so uh, downloading pictures was not an option for lots of people, especially we had international customers with bad service. So my entire website, I created it uh, text only, 800 pages of text. It was all about the different machinery, but and I had the most popular website there was for about 10 years because people could download it. Uh, there were no pictures keeping them from you know, a slow download. 
Well, that's pretty And awesome. I just decided to keep the website the same way. So it's pretty much that way right now. It's almost all text. And what's the website? Uh, groupk.com. I'm going to, I'll be checking that out because I'm doing this project and, and trust me, brother, I just, I, I am, I am reluctantly doing it. Well, I, I know the feeling. Uh, you know, uh, when you do a restoration, you're buying into a whole bunch of potential headaches. Oh, yes. I And, you know, we we have a saying for it here because uh, we've done a number of restorations of both motorcycles and watercraft. And my saying is, you know, to take something old apart and put it back together, that's really easy. But to take something apart and undo the sins of 40 years of butchers who got there before you, that's complicated. Yes. And so when you restore anything, you have to fix all of the butchery that was done before you got there. I'd never heard it put that way, but that's perfect because the machines that we get nowadays, I can't believe people did the things they did to them. Yeah. I know what you mean. I mean, but you just you just scratch your head. What were you thinking? Well, well, if you go on any of the forums nowadays and you read some of the things that people say, well, you got to do this because this works and that works. And you're like, what? Yeah. You know, I've been working on this machine for 30 some years and, you know, that didn't work back then. I know it doesn't work today. Yes. Yeah, the laws of physics are the same today as they were 40 years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah, and then you you read some of these things that these people do and uh I don't know, you you deal with customers I'm I'm sure all the time. They don't read the instructions. Yeah. Or people take things apart and they'll put a picture on the internet. Hey, where does this go? How does this how does this fit? Um maybe you shouldn't be working on it. Yeah. Yeah, but nobody wants to hear that. No, no. Um, do you do development work? I see behind you there's motorcycles. So are you doing development work today on motorcycles? Um, no, you know, uh, we've intentionally stopped doing a development. I have so much data, and I told my brother, Gerhard, with all the data we have, I don't need to produce any new data um, to make anything we do, you know, it's important to understand that we still do some of the watercraft stuff and the vintage motorcycle stuff. We've been backlogged 10 to 12 weeks for about the last five years. Uh, the standard saying I tell guys go, uh, I can never die because if I do, it's just going to piss off a whole bunch of guys who aren't going to get their inches. So um, what they're going to do is something's going to happen to you. They're going to bring you back and keep you working. They'll figure out a way to, you know, keep you functioning, you know. Well, I'll be looking forward to that. <laughs> you know, hey, I think as as far as technology goes, Musk is going to freaking have an idea where he can plug you in and download your consciousness into a computer. And there you go. Yeah, it would uh, be scary to think that somebody could download all the racing stories that are in my brain. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, 
Could 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 it happen? He thinks he seems to think it can yeah. happen. Well, I never say never. Well, AI and all this other stuff is is crazy. Yes, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the computer stuff. I don't. I don't really get into it. I don't really like it. Um, but doing this podcast, I've had to learn and, and break out of that shell where I where I have to do things. One of the things that I'm fighting tooth and nail on is AI. Yeah, well, fortunately, in in my uh, genre of the business. Uh, Almost none of that exists, so I feel fortunate in that way. Well, if you write a paper and you plug it into AI, AI can write it better. Well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> and I just scratch my head. This is this is so wrong. Well, um, yeah, these are bigger questions than my brain is equipped to answer. <laughs> Well, I I think this is an awesome conversation, and there's so many people, there's so many things that that I still want to ask. That you know, you've given me so much information. It, it, I'm swimming a little here, and I apologize for that. No worries. I'll tell you what. Go ahead and look at the podcast. Write down all your questions and call me again. Oh, dude, this was so incredible. Uh, and the things that you told me about working at DG and the the, the developments and, and all the data collection that you've done. I really, really appreciate it. It's, it's incredible stuff. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. If you're in need of a consultation for your current racing program, a custom ATV, or an industry guest speaker, I have the company for you. Duncan Technologies International Inc. offers host, MC, and guest speaking services at events. Builds custom ATVs for recreational riding or racing around the world. And they offer consulting services for professional teams or individual racers. Send inquiries to Duncan Tech International at gmail.com or call 619-716-1532 for more information. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, don't forget to share us with your family and friends. The podcast is available on all streaming platforms and you can find us on social media as ATV Talk Podcast. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Rumble, and Twitter. 